Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Impact the World, where my guest is Rob Mack. I first met Rob about two and a half years ago, and his brightness immediately stood out to me when I met him. So it was a real pleasure to get to have him here in the studio for this conversation, which really is all about happiness, how we cultivate it, why we avoid it, and some of our misconceptions about what happiness really is. Rob's master's is in positive psychology, and his book, Happiness from the Inside Out, which came out some years ago, really details some of the key elements that we need to cultivate happiness. He also shares that his forthcoming book is called Love from the Inside Out, and that will be released in just a couple of months. So you can learn more about Rob at coachrobmack.com. And if you stay tuned for this conversation, you'll see that we go a little all around the all around the theme of happiness. And Rob is just a delightful guest. If you are a fan of the show and you tune in regularly, it would mean the world to us if you could support us by either subscribing on YouTube if you watch the show, or if you listen to the show, leaving us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts and subscribing to the podcast. We're an independent show, so any support like that really helps us. For now, enjoy this episode with Rob Mack. Robert, thank you so much for being here. It has been two and a bit years since uh, we've been in the same room together, and I met you really briefly Uh, But you made an impact on me when I was coming to do your show, which was Good Morning La La Land, and my book had just come out. So it was about two and a half years ago. And I remember, you know, it's a busy studio. There's lots of guests. I mean, it was a fast show because you would have loads of different guests every morning. So there was kind of that organized chaos energy in the room. And I remember you stood out because you were so calm Mm. and you just held a a calmness and a presence. And I felt that from you when we were on the show, but also just in the studio as well. And then Kim Corbin uh, at New World Library said, oh, well, Rob's one of our authors and he has a book called Happiness from the Inside Out. And I said, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) Because, you know, I tend to think that we, we author things that are either our passion or our learning and you definitely embodied somebody who had worked on that. Oh my goodness, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you saying that. And that feeling is mutual, by the way. I mean, I think it takes light to recognize light. There's no question about it. And every time I've connected with you, I have felt nothing but the most positive, loving vibes. So please know that. Don't drive with me. Okay, <laughs> different scenario. It all comes yeah. out when I'm driving. I have yeah. a lot of opinions about other drivers. It's LA, yeah, so I can right. appreciate and understand that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well. Tell us a little, because I know the book came out a while ago um, and has done very well. It's been out for about a decade now. But one thing that really struck me about not just the book, but also you, is you studied positive psychology, which is something that was new to me. And I know that at the time you took it, you went to University of Penn, you took a master's, but it was still a fairly new thing. So can you explain a little 
to those of us who are new to it what positive psychology is. Yeah, so um, positive psychology is the study in science of what makes life worth living, right? So it's really the study in science of happiness for all of us lay people. And it grew out of the work um, that Martin Seligman was doing before that. He was studying like learned helplessness and depression. Mm. And he always assumed that if you just remove the mental dysfunction or the weakness or the illness from folks, that you'll get like a happy, thriving individual or a happy, thriving couple or organization or team or country. And he found, you know, through decades that that wasn't the case, that you can remove kind of what's going wrong with people, but you won't get thriving individuals or couples or organizations. You'll just get flatlining ones, right? So he was like, we've got to do a better job of studying what's right with people and study strengths and character virtues. And let's put a little bit more focus on, you know, subjective well-being and happiness. And let's talk about success and relationships and some of the things that, you know, are often overlooked, at least from a more positive perspective. Um, and by positive, we mean not just that, you know, it makes you feel good, but also that it's good for society or it's good for organizations. And so it can add to the health um, of an organization or a team or a couple or an individual. Um, so yeah, it was an incredible program um, there at University of Pennsylvania. It's a graduate program and it basically consists of like thousands of studies that have been done on the relationship between happiness and success or happiness and love. But it's really about um, sort of improving the subjective well-being of the world. Really. And what surprised you? Because I'm sure going into that, you, you already had studied this field in some way, but what, what surprised you through your learnings? Yeah, I think the first thing that surprised me was that there was a ton of evidence for things that I heard poets and philosophers and priests and you know, spiritual gurus talk about forever, right? There was evidence behind it. So that was the first piece. It was evidence-based in a real way that supported some of the intuitive leanings I think mm -hmm. that most of us have. Um, the second part was that, and this is what really got me excited, was that you know, happiness leads to success and success doesn't lead to happiness. Mm -hmm. I think we hear that as a platitude. You know, it sounds like a cliche, but there's real evidence to support that. So that was surprising to me. So the way I sometimes say it is, you know, happiness isn't only the greatest success, which means it's the reason we want success, right? The only reason we want yeah. to achieve or accomplish or acquire anything is because we hope to feel better as a result of it. So it's the greatest success. But also, it leads to success, which essentially means that happy people experience better lives, right? So they live longer, six to seven years longer on average. They make more money than their unhappy counterparts, about $600 to $700,000 on average over the course of their entire lifetime. They experience better relationships. They get married earlier, they stay married longer, and they're happier in all the relationships whether they're married or not. It's not about being married, it's about being in love or about being happy. Also, you find that happy people experience less job burnout, mm -hmm. right? They perform better. Um, while they're alive, they experience better health, right? They're also rated as more attractive like literally more attractive. You can show folks pictures of the same person, one in which they're smiling, one in which they're not smiling, and people will consistently rate the smiling picture as a more attractive individual. Isn't that interesting? It is. Especially as so many people can say, well, I smiled for the photo, but that was one of the worst days of my life. You know, you hear that story a lot too. Exactly, that's exactly right. So um, the other thing is that happy people tend to be kinder and more charitable, and they donate more money and more blood. But also by doing those things, you become happier. So I think what surprised me most was not only what happiness or what causes happiness, but also what happiness causes, what it leads to, the consequences of being happy. So that was pretty profound to me that like, you can prioritize happiness and find a lazier, smarter way to success in every area of your life. 
Right, which is fantastic. So you lay out in the book the key principles that you wanted to share. So can you share some of them with us now? Like, Because I'm sure everyone listening is, is sold. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, go ahead. I believe yes. you, Rob. This yeah. sounds really yeah. good. Yeah. So what what... What would you advise, like anyone listening, watching, or me, uh, are kind of good things for us to keep in mind? Yeah. So I guess, you know, the first principle that stands out to me is the principle of smart energy investment. That's mm -hmm. what I sometimes call lazy intelligence. Um, but the idea there is you can get equal or better results in practically every and any area of your life with less time, energy, and effort if you just look closely. And so that's a long way of simply saying, can we stop or at least reconsider whether or not we route our happiness through middle men, middle women, and middle things, right? So can we go directly to the source for this happiness thing? So instead of routing it through a better job, more money, a better body, more beauty, whatever, can we go directly to the source for it? And so that's what I call lazy intelligence. It's like, I'm really impatient and I want my happiness and I want it right now. Yeah. I don't want to wait for it. So I'd say that's probably one of the sort of first principles I generally discuss. It's like, what are you optimizing your life for? What's it really for? And then reverse engineering out everything that doesn't directly or essentially contribute to that ultimate end goal, right? So if it's happiness, it's like, are you spending time with people that support your happiness? Are you spending time doing things that support your happiness? Are you spending time thinking thoughts that support your happiness? And there's lots of science to tell us what direction we might want to lean in if we're not sure. So do we get kind of caught on a track just based on conditioning, habit, what we were told. So it, it, it's kind of like a reinvestigation around your awareness of the life you're building and how you're contributing to happiness. Is that, am I Absolutely, you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, it's exactly what it is. It's right. um, sort of exploring and really challenging yourself to rethink what your life is for, to rethink the ways in which or the assumptions you've sort of made about what will and won't lead you to live a fulfilling or content life, what will or won't lead you to living a successful life, right? It's really getting at the root sort of causes, assumptions, and premises around the way in which you're living your life. And what happens to most of us, to your point, is that we get stuck in this rut, and we don't even know we're in this rut. We end up living these scripts that have been given to us, mm. either explicitly or implicitly, that we live our lives out. And then we ask ourselves, why am I so miserable? You know, that was my story. I was like, how can I be so miserable? I look at my life and it was fantastic. I had a great life, but I was deeply, deeply miserable. And that is such a common story. And I think the other common story I think is people creating the life that they thought was gonna make them happy, creating it and then going, oh, this is not, this isn't working. And that's often when people go and dig deep in, inside themselves rather than looking for the outer status or the outer thing. So for you, what was a, what was a game changer that you applied to your life? Like what, what was a principle that perhaps was new to you or, or that was a real game changer for you around happiness? Um, that I could be wrong, <laughs> that I could be wrong. It's not that I didn't know I could be wrong in all kinds of other spaces, but I think when I got to a place in my life, probably about, 2021, you know, I looked at my life and I was living this incredible life as far as I was concerned. I was a management consultant. That sounded pretty cool. I didn't love the work, but I loved the people. I had this incredible girlfriend. I had two beautiful German cars. Didn't need two cars, one wow. guy, but like, you know, and I was living this great life and I was just more depressed than I'd ever been in my entire life. And I was actually becoming more and more suicidal, experiencing this suicidal ideation and thinking about killing myself 
more than I thought about anything or anybody else in my life. And it was that point I was like, you know, I never really questioned too much that more money or better health or a relationship or a house would lead me to feel better about my life. And when I got to this place where I was feeling so deeply depressed, so much so that I was willing to end it all, I was like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe there's another way, you know, but it took me having an actual suicidal experience first before I even began to consider that possibility. You know, the, for, for me, it was like the only way out of my misery is suicide, mm. right? So I had went through basically a period where I just researched, you know, like ways to kill yourself because I was you know, genuinely that depressed and that sad. And I decided, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna slash my wrist is what I'll do. Yeah. And still to this day, I have the suicide test marks on my wrist. And what's wild is that in that moment, for no good reason that I could ex explain or understand at the time, I just felt the most peace and joy and love that I'd ever experienced as I'm digging the knife in my wrist. And so I decided I was gonna put off the suicide for like 15 minutes. <laughs> it wasn't long, it was like 15 minutes. And even that I wasn't committed to, I was like, I might last 30 seconds, but I'll put it, I'll postpone it for 15 minutes. I do a little research and in that 15 minutes, I started discovering a lot of this research and other things that was out there around happiness and unhappiness and depression and suicide. And I realized I wasn't alone and that maybe, just maybe, I was wrong about life and happiness and success and love. So I'd say really challenging and questioning what you believe about life in general in addition to happiness, success and love is just a critical part of this happiness thing. That's such good advice too about just just wait if you know if I think especially and suicide is something that's coming up a lot at the moment you know we're hearing of more people who are taking their own life because they've got to a point where they they can't ask for help or they they've gone too far down a road that that they 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 can't see any other way out and um, it's interesting because hearing you say that uh, about a about twelve years ago in my life was like the lowest point in my life in my early thirties. And I also had a whole period where I started to think to myself, I don't know if I can take more of the suffering that I feel like I've been going through for a year. And I started thinking about death and going, okay, well, if I did kill myself, what would, and I really gave it a lot of time. And the one thing that was a light bulb moment for me was I understood the principle of contraction before expansion from my spiritual work, which is often things get worse before they get better, or we have the breakdown before the breakthrough. So my commitment to myself was, okay, this might take a year for me to work my way out of this ingrained depression that I've been in for a while, but I will, and I'm curious to see what's on the other side. And I had to be willing to be patient, which was not one of my virtues at, at that time with myself, um, because I was curious. I was like, I'm kind of curious to see what's on the other side of this, because this is the lowest I've been in my life. And yet I also understand the principle of energy. Mm. So. Wow, it's so, that's profound. It's so interesting hearing you say that too. That resonates so much. And without question, this patience theme has played itself out, of course, over the course of my life, but particularly around the happiness thing. I mean, as I started applying a lot of the tips, tricks, tools, and techniques that I discovered along the way, I was like, what's happening? I've been doing this for three weeks already now. Why is it not working? Or three months, why is it not working? And it felt like I would take two steps forward and 20 steps back. And to your point, 
the patience was critical. And sometimes I think only as of late, I've discovered that presence is probably a preferable word for me than patience. If I can just be present, I'm patient already. If I can find ways to enjoy this moment more, yeah. then the patience happens on its own. Well, and for me, patience was what I needed to apply to get me to presence. <laughs> you yes. know, it's almost like as if while I was impatient, I wasn't being present. So like, yes. you know, learn, learn to calm, calm that. It's, it's so interesting, Rob, because, you know, I, I didn't know that about you. And having met you, the way that we meet each other briefly, and, but, but orically, what you embody to me is someone who has really spent time being present, has really spent time in awareness, has really spent time looking at happiness. And of course, we're all human, so we'll all have our ups and downs, but you to me are someone who has cultivated that. And I think, huh, how interesting that you were in a position that was a very silent position and I think that's one around suicide. And I think it's one of the cultural issues we have. Why can't we go to our friends? Why are we in a culture where we, we aren't just able to phone our friends or, and just go, hey, these are the feelings and the thoughts that I'm having. And it not be a taboo or you not be judged or people not want to rush you to the hospital, but instead that there is this, this support that we can have for each other because so many people will have had the thoughts that we're talking about, that you, you describe, um, and just have no one to talk to them about or, or think they're completely uniquely dark thoughts that they're having. Oh, so good. So I'm getting soul shivers. Right. I get these soul shivers when I feel like I connect with someone so deeply and I get them every time I connect with you. And that point you're making is so profound. I think part of the work that each of us does is to help hopefully to normalize and destigmatize you know, mental health conversations, right? Mental yeah. illness conversations, conversations around suicide and depression, um, ideally. And I used to really believe, and this is something I also was wrong about, I used to really believe that I couldn't have these conversations with other people, because I had tried, I had tried to like, I would drop these little morbid jokes, mm -hmm. you know? It's like, doesn't matter, we're gonna die anyway, just to kind of see <laughs> if the person would have the conversation with me, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. But they wouldn't bite, like 99 times out of 100, nobody's biting on that, they're just like, oh, that's yeah. weird, don't say that wrong. And I used to think, oh, that means they don't understand, that doesn't resonate with them at all. They've probably never had these thoughts or feelings. But then I realized over time, just the opposite was true. Mm -hmm. It's because they've had the thoughts and the feelings more than likely and don't wanna look at that and don't wanna go back to that place that they don't wanna have the conversation with you often. You know, it's an extraordinarily vulnerable conversation and I think a lot of people feel a lot more fragile than they appear on the surface, right? And so it can be for both reasons, sometimes people can't have the conversation with you if you're deeply depressed or suicidal or going through something traumatic because they haven't had that experience. Sure, in lots of other cases, because they fear the experience or they fear going back to a place in which they were exactly where you are, right? And so there needs to be, and I'm looking forward to, and I'm hoping to support a safe space for people to have this conversation in authentic but confidently vulnerable ways. It's so important. And, it, and it, it would be a game changer. And I don't just mean around the area of suicide or those thoughts, but just, just for us as a connected culture. Like if we can connect and talk about all these things, you know, I've, I've said this before, but you know, for me, what saved my life age 16, one of the big things that saved my life was seeing the Oprah Winfrey show back when she used to have the audience be the show. And you'd be going around the audience and hearing from people about their everyday trials and tribulations. And as a somewhat, um, someone who was starved for emotional intelligence, I think, and needing emotional intelligence in order to figure out my own sensitivity, but it wasn't really around in Britain when I was growing up. 
um, that show was like a beacon of truth and a beacon of connection. And, and I think this is why the importance of anything where we can talk about this is, is huge because it can be such a lifeline for people. If you hear someone else having the same experience, you're no longer as isolated and you're less likely to take action. So good. You know, I love that you bring up the Oprah example. It's a perfect illustration, right? Because what was great about that, you get to actually see people, right, share in a confidently vulnerable way mm. in a space that was safe and it was an actual conversation and dialogue that happened. And then it was also an opportunity to model for you how you could, might be able to have that same conversation with other people. You also mentioned um, sort of give your people a lifeline. And one of my other favorite shows for that same reason was The Love Line with Dr. Oh, Drew and Adam Carolla. Oh, I never saw yeah, that. Yeah, I don't show. know if we got that in the UK, maybe. Oh, maybe not. At the time, because yeah. things were a lot more um, separate, what was going on in different co uh, different countries. That's right, that's right. Yeah. So we live in a much flatter world yeah. now, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it was like a show, and basically they would share sort of like dating, love, relationships, sex, and drug. Like, people would share their challenges. And then, you know, Dr. Drew was like kind of a straight shooter and would just answer the question from a clinical perspective. And Adam was a comedian. So he'd make jokes about whatever was happening and usually they were self-deprecating often. Mm -hmm. And they'd bring on a celebrity and they'd have this very open, sort of safe conversation in a relaxed way about some very serious topics, right? But I love the idea of seeing and supporting those kinds of conversations more um, in all of our lives. Yeah. So you wanted to study positive psychology for personal reasons, but the other side of you, you know, you've been a presenter for many years and, and you became an author with that book. Um, did, did it require a certain level of confidence mm. to be able to step into becoming a voice in that world as well as a student of that world? Yes, uh -huh. and before the confidence was desperation. <laughs> right. I mean, honestly, it was like, I couldn't figure out what to do with my life. You know, and I went down the psychology path as an undergrad, and you know, lots of folks said to me, for good reason, Rob, you're not gonna make any money. You're gonna be starving your whole life if you go down that path. And I just couldn't help it because I didn't find anything else that interesting. I was trying to really solve for my own problems. I think like so many helping professionals, you're really trying to help yourself first. And so I went down that path, did the consulting thing for five, six years, um, didn't love it at all, discovered how un unhappy I was, sort of, I don't know if you had opposite day as a kid. Did you have opposite day in school? No. Okay, so here in the States we had opposite day, which meant like every few months or maybe once a month, you'd have opposite day, which was anything that you normally did, you were supposed to do the opposite of that day, whatever. So it's like if you wore red, you'd wear blue, or if you, you could wear your shoes on opposite feet, whatever. Okay. So I had got, come to this place where I was like, okay, I think I'm wrong about happiness and about what life is for. I'm doing all these things like this job I don't love, this city I don't love, this incredible girlfriend whom I very much do love, but it's not really harmonious. Mm. And so I just decided I was gonna do the opposite of everything. <laughs> so part of that was I moved to Miami, I stopped doing anything corporate, I got rid of my two cars, traded them in for a scooter, and then just by a number of sort of coincidences, I found myself working in the entertainment business. I was a model, not something I'd ever imagined I would do. But all of it was kind of from a place of desperation. I didn't know what else to do. I was like, I gotta try anything. Did it find you or did you go and find it? It, it almost all found me. Right. You know, that was the interesting thing. One of my favorite quotes is that Martin Luther King quote. And he says, um, you don't need to see the whole scare staircase. You just need to see the next step. Mm -hmm. And for me, I remember coming to a place where it was like, I have no idea what I'm gonna do with my life. 
but I do know I like warm weather. <laughs> and I was like, how is that going to help me with anything else? But then I also had the insight and realization that if you don't act on the one piece of information you have, no matter how silly or paltry it seems or feels, then you might not be able to, the rest of the path won't let up. So I was like, I'm going to take this one step. I'm going to move to Miami. Move to Miami. A few months later, couldn't find any work. You know, I, was, I did the consulting thing for a year virtually. And then, and then I was walking along Lincoln Road. And a guy stops me and says, hey, you ever think about modeling? And I'm like, definitely not. Like in my head, I'm like the ugliest, worst model ever. I was voted most shy in my high school class. And he said, well, if you ever are interested, stop by. He gave me a card. About a week later, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. I'm not going to be able to pay my scooter, <laughs> little note. And I ran into somebody else. And he said, hey, you ever modeled before? I'm like, this is strange. Like, and I said, no. You do look like a model, well, by the way, I, Robin. I, I appreciate like... that. But in my head, it was nothing close <laughs> I to get modeling. It. No, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So eventually, because I needed the money, started modeling. And then what happened was, I'm doing the modeling thing for year after year, mostly which meant I was unemployed. Mm. <laughs> and I would be on these jobs. And sometimes the jobs were with people that had, were public figures. And sometimes it was with other models. But they would all say kind of the same thing, which is, you seem to enjoy having the conversations about happiness in the trailer more than you like being on set doing yeah. the other thing. And I was like, yeah. They're like, you ever think about just like doing that and charging for it? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. They're like, you should consider that. So you were unofficially counseling the people on the set yeah. in the trailer. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Like, and so I can't say it was, it was just like, this is the only thing I want to do. It's the only thing I'm interested in doing. So it didn't at first take a lot of confidence. It just it was out of desperation. It was also out of like need. For me, it was like I had made a decision when I didn't kill myself that it, I was either going to live extremely and extraordinarily like blissfully or not at all. Mm. And there was, there was some urgency in that. Like this is, I'm doing this. Like, the, you know, and so, so I guess we can call that confidence, but it was really more just a full commitment and a knowing that there was nothing else for me to do. Like, and in fact, I had to almost make it a career in order to make sure it sit on my radar in that like intense way. Got it. So later though, I discovered the, of course, the importance of confidence and all that. But at first it wasn't that, I wasn't very confident. It was just, this is one thing that I know I need to do for me. Do you find that the topic when you've gone into, you know, whether you're coaching groups, individuals, or, or if you've been a speaker for the topic of happiness, do you find it makes people initially a little nervous or a little, because I can imagine. Totally. I can, yeah, oh yeah, my gosh, yeah. absolutely. And what's funny is there's that piece and people then sometimes feel the need to either argue with me about it, right? I'm like, okay, yeah. I don't know. I'm well open to being wrong if it means you being happier. Um, or they think that I might be psychoanalyzing them, right. particularly with this happiness thing, right? And what's funny is over the years, I just set out to be a happiness coach because I was like, I need to keep it on my radar. And but I also want to share some of the tips and tricks that I've learned along the way that have been really helpful. Like I want to share it with other people. It was a genuine. And but then what happens is most people don't call you and say, I'm unhappy. They call you and say, I don't have a girlfriend, I don't have a boyfriend, or I do have a husband or wife, but they're making me miserable. Mm. So then you become known as a dating and love and relationship coach. That's what happened with me. I'm like, but I'm not, I'm really a happiness coach. But people think of happiness and they mostly think about relationships. Right, so that became a thing, and then I met people, and they would say, "Hey, aren't you, weren't you on that E show? Or pretend you do that other show? You were the dating coach guy." And then they get freaked out, and they're like, "What makes you qualified to be a dating?" Right, right? right. and then they think you're analyzing them about that. Right. So yeah, it can be a little challenging. I kind of love it though. 
Yeah. You know, because we get to have an important conversation um, that I love and I enjoy. I love it. A friend of mine who's a therapist was once saying that she hates announcing that she's a therapist at a dinner party because so many people go <gasps> and kind of look at her and I'm, oh, it's the same if you say you're an intuitive or a channel. <laughs> They're like, you're reading my mind. And it's like, I'm not really. I'm, yeah. not, I'm yeah. not right now. I'm not at work, yeah. you know. Just, it's kind of <laughs> just enjoying the calamari like yeah, everybody else. Yeah, I was, just, <laughs> I was actually talking about the movie with you, but okay. Um, it's funny. Um, so when you wrote the book, how how was that for you? Because I know a lot of people with our show, they've either written books or they're wanting to write books. What was the process of becoming an author like for you, both practically and emotionally, psychologically? Oh my goodness, great question. So in the beginning, it was just naivete. <laughs> right. Like all I was really doing, and I think some of the best, you know, at least the projects and books and films and TV shows that I most enjoy often came from a place of pure selfishness, right? And that was the case with the book for me. I was not intending to write a book. I was just tracking the things that were working or helping me to feel happier. It, that's it. I was like, okay, they say, keep a self-love journal, keep an appreciation journal, um, keep a moral log, whatever it was. And then I would do it and just track and say, is it working or not? And if it wasn't, I'd just scratch it out at some point and I was just kind of keeping my, and then I would also read things and put quotes in there. And then over time, people would ask me, what do you, writing, what are you working on? You're like, oh, it's just this little journal thing. And I'm like, what's in it? I'm like, happiness, kind of best practices, I guess. And I said, you ever think about like sharing that with other people? I'm like, I don't, not really. It's not really like that kind of thing. And then I thought, maybe I should actually, maybe I should share it with people, right? And so through some encouragement along the way, I just was like, I'll put it out there. And then I sent it probably to, I don't know, 20, 30 publishing companies. Nobody was interested. Yeah. <laughs> like what is, I didn't even get responses for most of them. And then, as I'm sure you're really familiar with, I was like, I surrendered to it. I said, well, I never got into this to publish a book. I got into this to be happy and share my happiness. I don't need a book to do that. I can just, just be happy. And of course, when you surrender, then yeah. something happens that comes along. And next thing you know, I had met Vanessa Williams and she was like, I'll write the Ford. And then, and she wrote the forward for you based on her belief in the topic, you uh, both, what, what, so, was, the, what yeah. was the key there? So I was doing the modeling thing and then I was moving more into acting. I got a phone call one day to come to this audition and I didn't think, I'm not much of an actor, you know, in my own head, I just didn't feel much of an actor. But I had a friend, my friend Melissa, who needed a ride and I had my scooter. So she's like, well, can you at least drop me off? And I was like, ah, it's the same audition, sure. So I gave her a ride to the audition and then it was for a show called um, South Beach on the CW. It's a very short-lived short show. Um, and they said, hey, we're looking for someone that can just pretend to be a model. Okay, I'm like, I can do that. And like, but there are a couple of lines we think that you might be good for as well. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm not that great an actor. You know, like, well, just read these lines and then let, show us your abs. That was literally it. Show us right, your abs right, right. Yeah, yeah. and read these lines. Read the lines and because I didn't, cared to really get the part, get the part. Right. The surrender piece. Book the role, ends up, the role was opposite Vanessa Williams, right? And so um, I shot with her that day, several months later, ran into her on Lincoln Road, and I just, we struck up a conversation and struck, you know, struck up a relationship, and it just evolved from there, you know? And in the process, she was extraordinarily, extraordinarily supportive and helpful in um, just encouraging me to move in a direction that was um, intended to help people you know, and um, yeah, and then when I told her about the book, she said, oh, I'd love to, I'll write the forward. 
And I thought, my God, that's big, you know? So it wasn't, you know, the, the joke I have with myself about my life is that none of it has been scripted. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, um, all the best things have happened to me out of divine grace, out of thin air. And it's mostly happened when my heart has been in the right place and I've surrendered. Mm. How has your heart and your happiness been over this past 18 months? And, you know, it's been, it's been a complex time. I think, you know, that depending on who you are, what your circumstances are, it's different for everybody. But I think one of the things that we can talk about a lot of people have had epiphanies, revelations, or had to really dig deep into how they look after themselves. So I'm curious what you have learned about maintaining happiness and balance that you either applied in a whole new way or at a whole new level over the last 18 months and yeah, how it yeah. sustained you. Oh, really profound question. Um, so first and foremost, what it's reminded me of um, is that happiness takes practice, mm -hmm. takes practice. And as long as you're alive, the practice will be necessary. You don't get to the end of the internet. You don't get to yeah. the end of the practice piece. And the practice can be extraordinarily enjoyable. Like for me, it feels like play. Honestly, it's like, it's the most enjoyable practice I've ever discovered in my life. So that's the first part. The second part is I think when you decide to write a book about happiness and you decide to become a happiness coach, there is a responsibility that comes with that that does not, you know, let you off the hook easily. Course, <laughs> and course. if you think it does, your mom or father or someone else is there to remind you, like, Rob, you're a happiness coach yeah. and an author. Yeah. How you doing? You know, it's like, and I love that, you know. And so um, particularly in the beginning when I wrote the book, the first year or two was tough. It's like all of a sudden you write this book and then people expect you to be happy all the time and to be smiling all the time. And that was tough for me. But then as I got older and I kind of evolved and deepened in my practice, I realized that um, I actually love that. I actually love that because that always holds me accountable. It's like I got to be accountable. And, um, and it becomes easier, right? So I'd say the first thing is it takes practice and it continues to take practice. That practice can be fun and enjoyable. Um, it's, the second thing is I think it's about the moment. You know, um, I forget about trying to be happy or live happily ever after. It's not about being happy tomorrow or five minutes from now or five seconds from now. It's just right here and now. Can I enjoy more deeply what I'm doing, no matter what I'm doing, even if it's something I don't want to do? And for me, it brings me to the next part um, that I sort of discovered, which was that I can enjoy everything and everybody so much more when I'm not thinking, mm. when I'm just enjoying. It's like if I'm evaluating, I'm not enjoying. If I'm examining, I'm not experiencing, right? It's like if I'm analyzing, I'm not appreciating. So it's like either appreciate or analyze, enjoy or evaluate. And so for me, it's like, Rob, you don't need to figure anything out. You don't need to solve anything for this person. You don't need to come up with something witty and funny or whatever to say. You can just literally be there, commune with them and spend time with them the way you would your own mom or your brother or the way I would with you. Not to get something from you, but just to be there. Right? So I think that part of it, this like, think less, live more, think less, love more, think less, enjoy more, and do it only in this moment. Don't try to get into all the past, clean up everything there. Don't try to get into the future and be happy forever. It's just like right now. Can I enjoy this moment more by thinking less? Mm. Always. I love it. And, and it's interesting, Rob, because again, this goes back to the whole 
I said to you earlier, do people, when they learn, oh, I'm about to hear a, a speech from a happiness coach or have a one-on-one -on -one session or a group consultation, you know, I'm sure defenses come up. But I also feel like we have a really, um, in the same way that our society is far too uh, one-dimensional in the way that we look at things, like, so you're a happiness coach, doesn't mean you're gonna be happy all the time. Equally, I think we have a very weird fixed idea of happiness. Like happiness, people tend to think mm. euphoria, hedonism, excitement, you know, and actually for me, I can be happiest when I'm in that really peaceful, still, no thinking, no evaluating place. So when I, when I started to understand that joy is a scale, and that, the, that for me, the axis point there is peace. Like if peace is the center of it, and yes, sometimes it will look like excitement, mm. but actually really for me, happiness is feeling balanced and present and calm, and then any decorative elements to happiness can get added to that. Boy, but I don't, run. I don't yeah. think we really, you know, we don't really break it down that way because we, we, and I think that can be a barrier. Like I'm imagining people listening to or watching this I can feel the people who are listening to this or watching this who are at home going, oh God, I'm so far away from happiness. And I, and I think that can be a barrier too, because you think oh, I should, it should look like this. So I love the idea of just, you know, stepping in the moment simply each day. If you can't get to happiness, can you get to peace if you're in judgment or fear or, you know, it's kind of like working your way up the scale. Oof, so good. So yes, yes, and yes to all that. You're right, emotional scale, right? It's an emotional scale. And sometimes it's just reaching for a feeling of relief. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's reaching for anger, right? Mm -hmm. You're in a place of help, hopelessness or helplessness and you can reach for frustration or even anger is a more empowered place to be often. It can feel that way, right? Like when I was suicidal, definitely, if I could have reached for anger, not against other people, but just a feeling of frustration, yeah. it would be more empowering. And I could move up from there, right? Sometimes we do try to take this quantum leap from like hopelessness to like hopefulness in one fell swoop, but that's too much of a leap, right? So there's that. And you're also right, the word happiness itself can be a challenge and troublesome, which is part of the reason I like to use it. <laughs> I used to struggle a lot with like, should I call it fulfillment or contentment? But I like the word happiness specifically because people have emotions around it. It's like, no, I don't want to just be happy. I want to be fulfilled. I'm like, okay, good. Describe the difference. Help me understand the difference for you, right? But one of the things I discovered to your point is that, okay, Happiness is not what you think, literally. So anything you think that happiness is, it isn't, okay? Because it's not a thought, it's an experience. It's really a state, it's our natural state. And that natural state is one of peaceful aliveness. Okay, so the way I describe happiness is it's peaceful aliveness. And it's, and by our, saying it's in our true nature, I mean that it's always there. It's always inside you. Further than that, it's always you. And the thoughts and the feelings that you experience the up and flow of life, the up and low flow of thoughts and feelings is, it comes and goes. But that peaceful aliveness that I'm talking about never comes and never goes. It always is. It's always underneath, above, beyond, below, and between every thought, feeling, and emotion, sensation, and perception that you have. Always there, okay? So the challenge, of course, is that we get so distracted by the thought and by the feeling that we miss this undercurrent this stable, lasting, meaningful, abiding, this infinite, eternal, like life force and life energy that I call happiness or peaceful aliveness, right? And so the challenge, of course, is 
to be able to appreciate and accept and feel your feelings and notice your thoughts, but not to lose this awareness of this deeper peaceful aliveness that's always there. A great metaphor, and spiritual teachers have used it forever, so you'll be, of course, familiar with it. It's like the screen in a movie theater. Like, think about it. When you enter a movie um, and you go to watch this incredible movie, you laugh, you cry, there's something sexy, there's something scary, there's violence, all this stuff is happening. And you get drawn and so caught up in it, it's consumed with it, that you cry and you're laughing, mm -hmm. but it's all fake. It's just yeah. characters and they're all playing a part. And it's just light that's hitting this screen. And the screen itself, no matter what happens on the screen, no matter what images are projected on that screen, no matter what circumstances and conditions change in the movie or in the characters' lives, the screen remains untouched, right? It remains, it's unmoving. It's unconditional in its acceptance and its love. It, lets, it allows for everything that happens on that screen, right? And, and it's immovable and unshakable and unconditional and indestructible nature. It remains peacefully alive, right? And so that screen is essentially within us. That screen is what I call happiness or peaceful aliveness. It's always there, but because we become so caught up in the circumstances and conditions and other people and other things and places and people and activities and our thoughts and feelings and sensations and perception, it's a lot. Yeah. We get so lost in the movie that you forget you're in the movie, right? And so sometimes, I don't know about you, but I've occasionally had the experience where a movie was so intense and I was so caught up in it, I had to remind myself it was a movie, like Rob, brother, it's a movie. You know, and in that moment, I'm like, oh, I can enjoy the movie again, right? So it's not to say that the things that happen to us don't matter, but there's something that matters more, and I call it happiness. Beautiful, beautifully. I love the movie analogy. It's funny too when you said something about anger. I remember once working with a client who had a lot of resentment and judgment, and um, you know, and she would talk to me about how this was running through her life, and. Um, and I remember saying to her, you need to get angry. And she got really angry at me. And I was like, great, that's it. That's okay. I, I can take it. This is the, and she, then she got angry at herself and upset at herself for getting angry at me. And I was like, no, no, no. And th then she started crying. And I'm like, if we can just let this out a bit more, then all of those mini resentments and judgments, which is like tightly contained anger is not going to run through your life. Um, and that's, you know, something all of us have to look at. Like I notice for myself, if am I compressing my emotions and some of my behaviors? Oh, so, so good. I love what you're saying here about, you know, it's, it's always there. It's always underneath. And it's so interesting hearing you say all this. I'm like, God, we're told what to do in society. We are not guided on how to feel, how to be. We're told what to do. And that, you know, that's, that's why we have such a dysmorphic society and cultural programming at the moment. You nailed it, absolutely. I mean, and you actually just sort of outlined the experience I've had. I think the journey that most of us have with happiness, it's like in the beginning, you think happiness is mostly either what you have yeah. or what you do. And there's, a sh there's value in that. It's like definitely do the happier thing. Please, don't do the unhappy thing. Do the happier thing if you can. And definitely have the stuff. I love stuff, yeah. you know, got stuff. Right, stuff is great. And you get to a place where you're like, okay, I have some happy stuff, seemingly, and I've done some happy th things, but somehow I still find myself unhappy in moments, even when I'm doing the happy stuff or spending time with the happy people or whatever. So then you graduate from that. It's like happiness isn't just what you do. It's not just who you spend time with, although those things matter for sure. Choose the happy people and happy stuff. 
and happy things. And then you get to a place where it's like, maybe happiness isn't what I do. Maybe it's, maybe it's what I think. You're starting to get there, right? But then you discover, as I did, that you can think the most positive thoughts. And you can think really any thoughts you want to think, right? But still, underneath that, still this undercurrent of anxiety. That was my experience. I was like, I'm still thinking very positively. I feel better, certainly, than when I was thinking very negatively or very pessimistically. But there's this undercurrent of anxiety and lack of fulfillment that just won't leave me alone. What's going on there? What's underneath that, right? And then you come to realize that, well, part of it, to your point, is like, are you allowing yourself to experience the entire spectrum of the emotional scale? Yes. But also, you come to realize, at least for me, I did, that happiness is also not a state of mind. It's a state of no mind. It's a state of being, right? And that doesn't mean that you need to get rid of all your thoughts to experience it, although it's a heck of a lot easier to see the screen when there's nothing projected on the screen. But it's a state of being. And for me, that means experience everything you want to experience and think everything you want to think and feel everything you want to feel. Certainly, if you have the option to do, lean into the more supportive thoughts and feelings and people. But at the end of the day, the happiness that we're searching for is always there. It's always there. And it's just a sense of, sometimes I talk about it as like, it's the naked awareness of your blind being. It just means before you have a thought, you're aware that you exist. That, at first, feels like nothing, right? It's like entering a dark room, like meditation. You enter the meditation or the dark room, and you're convinced there's nothing in the room. So it's like, why do I stay here? I'm just going to get out of here. There's nothing here. It's all dark. But you spend more and more time just feeling into that, spending time in that dark room, whether it's meditation or whether it's noticing that you exist, just that awareness that you exist, just that. It sounds so silly. but And then it, all of a sudden, your eyes start to adjust, and you're like, wait, there's stuff in this room. You know, and then you spend more and more time and it, your eyes adjust more and more and then you realize, oh my gosh, this room that I thought was so dark is full of light. There's nothing but life and it's full of infinite riches, right? So same deal with me. It's like once I got around to like, all right, let me just observe and feel the anger without thinking about it, without escaping in my head. I'm just going to experience it for what it is without judgment and I'm going to experience the sadness now. I'll even experience the pleasure in it. Can I just do more of that? And while I'm doing that, can I just notice that there's something noticing? Can I just, just a little bit? And then you suddenly discover all this emptiness that I thought I, was, I felt, it, it's really fullness. It legitimately is. It's not just a, like a spiritual platitude. It's not just a cliche. Like the emptiness is full. It's like overflowing. Like the, like the misery that you think is there, it's like underneath it, deep underneath it, is this overflow of pure bliss. But it requires precisely what you said, which is like, sitting in the discomfort without judgment for long enough to discover there is no monster under the bed. Mm. You know, it's like you have to look to know. I, I know that you, we spoke about this a couple of years ago, I know that fitness is a huge part of your life and has been like a, a really important baseline for you. And um, I think it was about three years ago now that I really, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd I'd gone in and out of fitness all my adult life, but three years ago, I really just committed. And it is a complete it game shows. changer. <laughs> shows, well, brother. But it's so funny because I think, you know, some of the reasons I might have gone into fitness before would have been more to do with self-judgment or, you know, the, the stuff that we all have. But the, the beauty of a consistent fitness practice, of course, is what it unearths in you and what it reveals. And I'm listening to you and I remember one of the great things that I once heard that has stuck with me is, 
you never regret working out, which has been very important for me to remember when I'm coming up with all these, oh, I yeah. could just, I could just not today. I could, you know, all those reasons. And, and it's the same, like to me, that's the dark room. It's like, oh, I don't want to go in the dark room. But, and that goes back to, we're, we're probably wrong. Like, you know, if we, if we let every thought in our head, if we believe that is the only and total truth, then we aren't going to go beyond those barriers. And that, that really, to me, the fitness and uh, practice of happiness is kind of the same thing. It's like anything we cultivate, anything we keep going at, it will reveal things to us that we could never have known would be there. It is. It is the same thing. And what a great metaphor. And without question, I mean, somehow you know more about me than I know about me. It's pretty incredible because sports and exercise has been a part of my life since... Mm. I was small, right? And it's still a part. And it's interesting to your point. When I stopped playing sports, I was like, okay, I need to just go to the gym for the gym, like just or just exercise, just to exercise. It was different because before I was used to competing or whatever. And so it wasn't so easy at first. But then I realized that as I kept it up and did it even though I didn't feel like doing it, right? It became easier and easier. And then got to the place where it was like actually and still is the most enjoyable thing I do all day long. And now it's harder for me to miss a day than it is to go. Like it's it legitimately harder. When I want to say, hey, listen, I'm a little tired. I should probably take the day off. I, it, I can sit there for 15 minutes and then I, I can't. I got to go to the gym. It's just way yeah. easier and more enjoyable and it becomes automatic, right? So a huge piece of this entire, you know, I think conversation, not just between us, but the larger conversation is about neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain, the ways in which you rewire the brain. It's like you do this thing that seems unfamiliar and is unfamiliar at first yes. and takes a lot of effort and you keep doing it. And even if you have to do it in small baby steps or in bite-sized pieces, that's fine. You don't have to do it all at once. But as you continue doing it, 22, 66 days, somewhere in there, you rewire your brain to do it in a much less effortful, much easier, much more automatic fashion. So then your default mode your modus operandi becomes going to the gym, not missing the gym. It becomes feeling the peaceful aliveness, not feeling the deep misery or discontent or dysphoria, right? And it's profound. So the brain wants, it loves to change and adapt. It takes a lot of effort. And so the one thing I discovered is you're absolutely right about that. Like if you can do it with exercise or fitness, or you can do it in any area of your life. If you made a change in any area of your, any area of your life, you can do it in any other area. No question. It's just... Rinse, wash, repeat. Mm -hmm. So for you, we're recording this near the end of 2021. What would you like to create or cultivate in 2022? This feels like a good, a good, a good closing kind of question for you. Is there anything that's on your vision board or yeah. that you'd really like to lean into? So I'll give you the answer that most of my friends want when I, <laughs> that I'll give you my answer, I really. So I would say, so a um, couple books. Right? I wrote like eight books and I haven't, yeah, I haven't, one of them's in the process of being published. So Love from the Inside Out. Fantastic. So Happiness from the Inside Out and I Love yes, from the Inside Out. Exactly. Great. And um, looking when forward to that. When will that come out, by the way? Um, end of 2021. So Okay, perfect. So it will be coming out not too long after this show comes out. Exactly. Great. Exactly. Um, and so the other books, I'm going to do that. And then a few TV projects I'm working on. Um, we'll see. Um, you know, this kind, I, I love what you do here. Like I genuinely love what you do here. It's like personally and professionally inspiring and it's uplifting and it makes me happy to be alive, like to be able to have this conversation in this genuine and sincere way. 
Um, so I'm working on things that are different but complementary to that. Right. Right. So that now that's the answer that I would tell my friends and family and people I care about. But what I'm most passionate about, quite frankly, is not really having a plan. You, Love it. You know, it's like I just have discovered that I'm often wrong <laughs> about what is in my best interest. And I'm often wrong about what I think will lead to more happiness or whatnot. And I'm happiest, honestly, when I'm just what I call practice the presence. It's like I'm communing with the God within. And it's a thoughtless, wordless, faceless, formless, stateless state of just being, whatever I'm doing. It could be swiffering or in conversation, but it's like, is there still part of my awareness? Like that, and just letting that sort of prepave the next steps for me personally and professionally. You know, I am not good at planning my life. When I have done it, I have wrecked it. <laughs> so I'm in a place of just, I guess, being a bit of a witness and observer to that. I want to co-create. I want to be proactive about it. But I want to make sure that I'm listening to my heart, not my head. Brilliant. I love it. Rob, you're a delight. Thank you so much for being here today. And I know that this, you know, we haven't, We've done a lot of shows and we've never done a show that really focuses on happiness. So not only thank you for sharing that with us, but also thank you for making that your your life and your energy field's mission because it definitely is is wired into you and we need it. So thank you so much. My pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. And I genuinely want you to know that I love not just what you do, but I genuinely love who you are. So thanks for just being um, such a brother and a friend and... Um, support in, uh, in these kinds of conversations. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much, everyone. And you can check all of the links in the show notes to find Rob and Rob's work and Rob's book and his soon to be published book, uh, which will be out at the end of 2021. So thanks for tuning in today on Impact the World. And we will see you next time. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm an intuitive and a channeler, and I've been channeling now for 23 years. And the information and the energy that my guides have underscored my life with throughout those years has been very transformative for me. And for those of you who've followed my work over the past 17 years or so, I know for many of you too. As I was visioning and doing a lot of deep diving this summer, really talking to my guides a lot through the month of August, they gave me the name Initiation as the name for a series of messages that they want to bring. Initiation will begin on October the 27th and every Wednesday, live from this studio, I'll be channeling for approximately an hour to 75 minutes. I have asked my dear friend and sound healing collaborator, Devor Bozik, to create some original music encoded with planetary frequencies, but also frequencies that relate to our body that can run underneath each of the channels. And my guides disease have given us a written message about what initiation will be and what will take place during it. You can find that and all information about this experience on the course page, which is initiation2021.com. 
In between each of the live broadcasts, I will do a special calibration video that helps us at a human level calibrate to and integrate and absorb what each channeled message will be. This is different to anything I've ever done before. I can't wait to bring it to you and neither can my team. If you feel to be with us for initiation or you want to just get a sense of it, please visit initiation2021.com or use the link below this video to learn more and to feel more and to see if it resonates with you. If so, we'd love to have you with us.